Session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Amra. Studio number to call in. Well, I won't be taking calls today because I'm doing Instagram Live for the show as well. So you can call in on the Wednesday show. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, let me get into the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love by Amir Levine and Rachel S.F. Heller. So the book is Attached on Attachment Theory. I'd heard a lot about this book and I'd seen it a bunch of times as a great book uh, describing and giving some new research on attachment theory and how it relates to romantic relationships. Uh, so I bought it actually a few months ago and finally get to get to read it this uh, week. So looking forward to sharing that with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. The Voices Within, The History and Science of How We Talk to Ourselves. And this was a fascinating book, very interesting um, looking at something which we really take for granted in a lot of ways, which is that we have an inner voice or that we talk to ourselves all the time. And then also how maybe this can go wrong in some people where they can hear voices. And so he talks a lot about that, about hallucinations, which he sometimes prefers the phraseology of um, voice hearing to make it clear that we're not talking about something so bizarre or something that makes someone sick in some way. And that's something I really appreciated about the book. He mentions Oliver Sacks a few times. And something that Oliver Sacks was known for and that I really appreciated about his writing and his work was that he would talk about individuals who were going through something that we might think of as a little bit bizarre or not typical. But the way he would talk about individuals going through something was very humanizing, making them very human, rather than looking at that, them as someone odd or crazy or sick, the way we might think of it. And so you, you get that same sense in this book that uh, Charles Fernihoff presents voice hearing, what we sometimes call hallucinations or auditory hallucinations, but does so in a way that's very humanizing with respect, very humane. Um, it's not something that makes people crazy or weird. In a way, it's something we all do, but maybe for people who hear voices the way that we talk about it, they might have something slightly off about something that every everyone else does, which is usually the case of any type of a symptom or mental illness that we talk about. It's something quite natural that's maybe more extreme or not moderated the way that it needs to be. So we all have some level of anxiety, but some people might develop an anxiety disorder. We all experience depression in different ways. Some people might have major depressive disorder, but it's not something that makes them a, makes someone going through it them, someone who's so different from us. 
So I really liked that approach and mindset that he had when talking about um, people who hear voices and how we should think about them and think of, of studying what they go through and how they can teach us about individuals who are not hearing voices in that way. But, you know, the title of the book is The Voices Within, not The Voice Within, which itself is interesting because if we think about it, when we talk in our heads, we might think it's one voice. Even as a therapist, I at times am trying to help people or I think, let me help someone find that voice within. But really thinking about it with this perspective, you realize we all have multiple voices in our heads. Um, and, and what that means and, and how that shows up, I'll talk about some more. And if you think about it, you'll realize you do this. He shares the example of athletes, for example. You might see them get mad at themselves. You know, a tennis player will miss a shot and then will think, ah, why did you do that? Or call themselves a name. Or we'll talk about how we'll, we'll talk to ourselves in a negative way. Sometimes even coaching yourself. Okay, calm down, calm down. And, and it's interesting that we do that because you think, well, who are you, who's talking to whom? When you say calm down to yourself, uh, are they both you? Is it some internalized voice of someone else, a coach, a parent, a loved one? Uh, what does that exactly mean when we talk to ourselves? Something that we all do really every day practically, and he talks about studies looking at that, but it's really an experience that we almost take for granted because we're doing it all the time but don't really think of the nuances of what it means. And I'll never know what's going on in your head and vice versa. Part of actually what allows us to communicate, but also miscommunicate. So it's interesting to, to think about these things. And, and that's something I left the book with. There was a lot of discussion about research, trying to understand our um, inner voice and when we speak to ourselves and what's going on. Some of it was very interesting. But a lot of it was more about giving me some perspective and also some things to think about when it comes to this um, aspect of human experience, of talking to ourselves, this inner speech, these voices within. So it wasn't just about answers, but more about trying to understand things better. But he did share a lot of research. Um, for example, something like if you hear someone talk, let's say if you know of an author and then you're reading their book, or let's say you know a public figure, and then you're reading their autobiography, so it's in their quote-unquote voice. If they speak more slowly, you're likely to read it more slowly than if it's someone who speaks more quickly. It has an impact. So in a way, we internalize, in a way, not just a voice, but a way of being or a way that they speak, which is really interesting. And he shares a lot of other research on um individuals who hear voices, those who have schizophrenia. And it also also should be mentioned that not everyone that hears voices is diagnosable uh, or can be diagnosed with schizophrenia. First of all, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, with bipolar disorder, or also even with depression can develop um, hearing voices, but also people who are not necessarily going to be diagnosed with some type of mental illness have different experiences with their the internal voices that we hear and experience. So again, it's recognizing that it's not something that just some people go through and everyone else is quote-unquote normal, but that we all experience these things to different degrees, which is, which is interesting. So, you know, thinking uh, about this book, it made me realize all the psychological theories that talk about, in a way, having these different voices within us. For example, the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, 
um, by Thomas Harris and, and this whole field of transactional analysis where you have a parent, an adult, and a child that we all have within us. And in some ways, it makes sense when you think of this way of looking at a human being. For example, sometimes you want to do something fun that maybe doesn't have the best consequences, and we might think that's the child who is operating. But then another voice in your head might be the parent trying to punish you for wanting to do that thing. And then you might have this adult who's a little bit more balanced who can look at the whole process and make a decision, or hopefully that's where we're operating from. We've all experienced these things where you realize part of you wants to, let's say, do something and part of you does not. Or one aspect of ourself thinks, let me do this. Another aspect says, well, let me prolong this grat gratification because I want to get some kind of benefit. And it, of course, brings up this Walt Whitman poem um, where he says, I am large, I contain multitudes. So he says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. And so we each contain multitudes. It's an interesting question. We say, who am I? Trying to find our, our identity. When you really can recognize that we all have various aspects of ourselves, it's quite complicated to say, who am I? And have one singular answer. It's not really very clear. So I think it's very interesting. And this book made me rec recognize that. And even in therapy, sometimes you might tell a client, it seems like, one part of you wants to do this and another part of you wants to do that. Or you feel this and another part of you feels that. And so we have these multiple aspects of our self, of our personality. And so this also, again, can make us think of um, a diagnosable condition like dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder, which might just be a stronger fragmentation of something we all experience. So we all have these different aspects to our personality, but we consider ourselves one person. But an individual with dissociative identity disorder, these different identities have splintered off so much into different components that are so disconnected from each other that it can feel like they have multiple personalities or that their identity has completely dissociated. So it's not one cohesive integrated self. And, and so this is um, something that we often recognize as a goal in mental health or in psychology as a therapist is to try to help someone integrate the different aspects of themselves. And so it's quite interesting hearing it in this perspective that we have these different voices. So it was really a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Again, it's called The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. Um, looking at our self-talk and, and what it means. Another interesting theory when we're trying to understand people who hear voices is that maybe it's this natural uh, self-talk that we have. And let me take a step back. He focuses a lot in the book on what he'll call dialogic uh, self-talk or inner speech, which is sometimes we have these dialogues inside our heads. It's not just a thought process of one person thinking. You might actually have these back and forth. You might ask yourself, well, why did that happen? I don't know. Or you might think, I don't want to do that, or why would you want to do that? And you might even answer and respond to yourself. So we all can have those kinds of conversations. Um, but he brings up that some people who hear voices, they uh, might have some issues where they um, don't recognize that the voice is happening within their own head. So they hear this voice in their head, and because they don't realize they've thought it themselves or they've somehow generated it, 
They assume it's coming somehow from the outside. And this reminded me of some studies I'd read before or was in another book, research they'd done on uh, people who have schizophrenia trying to tickle themselves. And so usually if you tickle yourself, you won't laugh because a part of what makes you laugh when someone tickles you is the unpredictability of what they're going to do. But when you try to tickle yourself, your brain recognizes what is it, what actions it's taking, so you don't get that same sensation. But they found that with individuals who do have um, schizophrenia, they actually could laugh when they would tickle themselves. And, and this is also showing up in other ways when we look at hearing voices, that it seems that there's parts of their brain or parts of their way of processing things might not be able to recognize this me and other kind of experience as well, or to recognize what their own brain and what they themselves are doing so that when they, let's say, hear that voice, you might think, oh, that's from my own head. They don't recognize it as coming from them. And so they assume it must be coming from someone else because they hear the voice very clearly, just like you might in your own head, but not recognizing where it's coming from makes them think it must be from some outside source. And so they might misunderstand in a way what's going on. And because of that, think that they're hearing some kind of voice, something that we all do, but in a way a misattribution rather than recognizing it's within their own head. And they can't understand if you, you know, if you felt something on your arm, but you didn't realize you were touching your own arm, you might assume someone is touching you. Um, actually, it reminds me of a, a funny story of a friend of ours who, um, his arm fell asleep while he was sleeping and he woke up and felt a hand on his face and thought someone was attacking him. And he says it in a very funny way. Um, but the moral of the story from what we're talking about right now is that sometimes if you have a sensation and you can't understand that it's coming from yourself, you're going to assume it's coming from an outside source. So it gives, them some, gives us some perspective or insight into individuals who might be hearing voices that they are not, you know, somehow doing something weird or crazy, but it might be something we all do, but just this one aspect of not being able to recognize that this is coming from me makes it so they think it's coming from somewhere else. And so, um, again, this book does a great job of humanizing the experiences of some people that sometimes get dehumanized. People with schizophrenia, even I can say as a... Uh, psychologist, when you hear schizophrenia, it brings up these uh, images or thoughts of someone who's severely mentally ill, who can't be cured or helped really that much. Maybe uh, the medication can help in a little way, but not completely if they're severely ill. But you have these judgments that you make. And so it was good for me also in reading this book to recognize that I myself have internalized these judgments about uh, people who have schizophrenia or who hear voices. Even we kind of joke about things like this. Okay, if you're hearing voices, that's a, a problem. Or if you, um, you know, are hearing voices, it means you're crazy. If you're hearing voices, it means you're dangerous. All these kinds of things. And that's not true. Um, actually, people who have uh, severe mental illnesses like, let's say, schizophrenia, they tend to be more likely the victim of a violent crime than to be violent themselves. But we've internalized these judgments about the, the person who is hearing voices and is going to come hurt other people. And that's very much the exception rather than the rule. So something important to keep in mind. Now, we also can internalize people into our lives too. So if you're surrounded by people who give you a lot of love and positive reinforcement, 
it's more likely this wasn't exactly addressed in the book, but we know that that's more likely going to affect the way you talk to yourself. And similarly, if you're around people who are always critical, abusive, telling you you're not good enough, you're very likely to internalize those voices too. And you see this very often. So I see this with my clients that you'll see that the way that their parents talk to them is the same way that now they talk to themselves, unfortunately, because especially if it's negative, they carry that negative voice with them. And so I think it was on last week's show on Wednesday, I was talking about how as a parent, you want to be very aware of what you say to your kids, because imagine however you're talking to them and whatever you're saying to them, that might be essentially played on repeat for the rest of their lives. So what type of voice, what tone, what attitude would you like for your kids to internalize as their own inner voice? And you have a lot of influence and effect on what kind of voice they're going to have and carry with them going forward. So that's something important to keep in mind. But, you know, the book, it's just very fascinating looking at even writers, authors. What do they do? Sometimes they'll describe the process that it's like their characters start speaking to them and they're just listening um, and writing down what the character is saying, not so much that they're creating it. They're tapping into something. In my mind, that's somehow part of the, the unconscious that's getting tapped into, but it's something interesting to hear different authors of fiction talk about how they might even capture a conversation between uh, different characters, and then now they just write that conversation rather than just um, you know creatively thinking about what they're going to say and things like that. So the book looks at different aspects of our self-talk, our inner speech. It does a great job of making you think about it in different ways, giving you some perspective, and again, making us recognize that when we think of someone who hears voices as so different from us, again, a us and a them, maybe that distinction is not so strong. Or maybe it's just someone who is like everyone but has something that's slightly different, just like we all have some differences, but doesn't mean they're somehow worse or um, less than in any way. And we want to be aware of the judgments we might have. So that was The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. Highly recommend the book, um, but I wanted to change gears. And, you know, recently, and in this show, I've always talked a lot about things like um, racism and different types of prejudice, different groups who are treated poorly oppressed and different types of prejudices whether it's sexism um, heterosexism uh, racism and also it could be against of course religion and, and whatever else it might be you know something that i've seen in the news more and you've probably seen it as well it is related to a rise in anti-semitism um, prejudice against people who are jewish and it it's been sad to see some people making comments and very proudly saying them. Of course, it's been nice to see people like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who wrote an article saying how we have to make sure we address this issue and don't accept anti-Semitism. And so I wanted to talk about this because I think we want to be aware of any type of prejudice that we have, that the answer is never going to be to find a group to scapegoat, which is what we tend to do, especially when times are tough, both economically, but of course right now with COVID, we're seeing that as well, where people are looking for someone to blame because we're not happy about what's going on. 
Now, I'm sure there are people we could be upset with or people who have done some things to contribute to what's going on in some ways, individuals. But when we look for certain groups to blame, we always want to catch ourselves. We want to be aware of when we do this. And, you know, people say a lot about how if you don't understand history and look at history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so this is one of those areas where we want to look at history, both both current, recent, and, and very far in the past, if it has to be, to see the different ways that and different groups that people have discriminated against or found to be a scapegoat in some way. And almost always when we have some kind of strong prejudice against a group, there is a dehumanization process. And so in the previous segment, when I discussed individuals with schizophrenia, I was saying how we can dehumanize them, somehow make them come off as less than human. Um, and, you know, we can call them crazy or call them certain names or words that make it seem like they're, again, it's a them, not us. There's us who's quote unquote normal and okay and healthy. And then there's this them. But then we also see this happening with other groups as well. And especially we've seen it every time there's been some kind of genocide or strong form of discrimination or persecution that happens, there's almost always before that a dehumanization process. So if you look at any genocide that's happened in the world, very often before that you'll see that there's propaganda that is promoting that this group is somehow less human than others, whether it's depicting them as animals, that's a very common way, whether it's rats or spiders or something, lizards or whatever it is, there's some way that will dehumanize the group or even saying they're robotic, they're not even human, they don't have feelings or showing them as these rageful beasts that are not even human. But you will almost always see this as a way of justifying treating a group as less than human, that they're somehow not us. Again, creating that us and them and not only that they're different, but they're worse, and they don't even deserve to be treated well. Because if you are able to depict a group as being less than human, well, then you can treat them as less than human. You can uh, hurt them, kill them, abuse them. It doesn't really matter because you're saying if they are so uh, bad and they're so less than human, then who cares what we do to them? And this is what we've seen throughout history when you say a group is less than human, if you say they're animals, they're rats, they're doing something uh, to hurt the society, then the answer quickly becomes, well, we have to even get rid of this group, exterminate this group. And that's what we see happening. And so, of course, with Jewish people, we don't have to go uh, far, very too back far in history, especially when you can go back to World War II and see what happened there um, to recognize that they have been become the scapegoat for many societies in different times in history, and then, of course, treated horribly and killed, and we, we don't have to even uh, discuss the details, but of course, with the Holocaust, millions of Jews being killed, and this being justified because they were causing society harm. And so, unfortunately, what you're seeing is some of those that same type of rhetoric by some people about Jewish people some of them are conspiracy type theories that they have some kind of power and control that they don't have. And of course, negative things about them that they have some negative plan. And so it opens up the door to then harm them or hurt them in some way, whether it's verbally 
uh, online or by talking to individuals or by taking actions. And this is really something we want to be very mindful of and aware of. And so if I'm speaking out against things like racism, against uh, black Americans, which I think, of course, is still very prevalent and why we need to keep talking about it. When I see this rise in anti-Semitism, it was uh, concerning me. It made me upset, and I wanted to make sure I spoke about that too, that we can't be silent about injustice towards any group. Or when we see any group being painted as the quote-unquote bad guys or bad girls or the ones that are causing problem, we want to make sure we speak out about it that it's not acceptable, it's not okay that we allow these things to happen. So I'm very sad to see some even very famous people like Nick Cannon, um, football player Deshaun Jackson, talking about and promoting and propagating some hateful things about Jewish people. And we want to be very careful about this, and we have to stand up for this. We have to stand up for all of our brothers and sisters of whatever background it is. If we see a group being targeted, it's up to all of us to say something about it and to stand up. Uh, sometimes people think, well, if it's not my group, why should I care? Um, but of course, I think when we look at the quote by Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If anyone is experiencing injustice, we should be concerned. Uh, of course, we should hopefully have that concern just in general for all people that um, if someone is being hurt, we should care about anyone. But also we should recognize that when any group starts to get discriminated against, persecuted, that means we're allowing for other people as well, and that could include you. So obviously we shouldn't do it just for selfish reasons that it could be us that gets hurt at some time, but uh, we hopefully will just do it because it's the humane thing to do, that as a society we cannot accept that certain groups are going to be targeted in some way. So we want to be, in a way, uh, almost allergic, have a reaction to when we, we see that. And I'm reminded of the book that I talked about a few weeks ago, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, that it's not enough just to say you yourself are not racist or you yourself are not sexist or you yourself are not promoting some kind of prejudice. If you're not doing anything against the prejudice, that should be concerning to you. If you were just allowing it to happen and saying, well, I don't want to say anything because for whatever reason, you're not sure how it's going to be um, responded to or how people will react to it, you should consider yourself as part of the problem. You're contributing to what is going on by your silence. So you can't be um, non-racist. You have to be anti-racist, meaning that you're actively fighting against it in some way or actively promoting things that create positive change. And so whatever group we're talking about, we want to make sure we stand up. Um, and so I'm happy to see some people who are both, of course, in the celebrities and those types of people, of course, but also just individuals who are putting comments out there about the concern they have for this rise in anti-Semitism. And as I mentioned before, when things start to get tough, we always see this. If there's an economic downturn, people are looking for scapegoats. Whose fault is it? Who's the cause of what I'm going through that isn't good? And um, usually it's not just one group of people that has caused it. And usually it's things that might feel different from us, like immigrants or people who look different from the majority are almost always the target of these kinds of things. So right now with the economic downturn 
and coronavirus, of course, those things are interrelated. We want to be even more on the lookout that people are looking for groups of people to blame. And unfortunately, politicians very often will use this because fear works very well to motivate people to vote. Fear is a very strong emotion. And if you get people scared of a certain group and make them feel like those people are the bad guys, well, then people will, they will, uh, of course, vote against them in some way, but even take actions. And so we see that when there's more rhetoric, when people are talking more in hateful ways about certain groups, we almost always see a rise in crime against those people as well, which is very concerning. This is why when I, for example, talk about LGBTQ rights or talk about individuals who are trans who are still experiencing higher levels of uh, violence against them, it's very important for us to speak out about this, to change the conversations that surround people of whatever group we're talking about, but in this case, if I mention individuals who are trans, because when we don't talk or if we allow for negative talk to continue, it leads to negative actions towards these individuals. And that's very concerning and scary. So we've seen um, rises in crimes against Jewish people related to people talking more about these types of things in a negative way, promoting these negative stereotypes, these negative fake stories about um, conspiracies, about a certain group of people, which I won't even get into. And we have to be countering these things. So that's why I wanted to make sure I talked about that today, that if you are seeing these comments against people who are Jewish or conspiracies, we have to stand with them or stand with us. We're all uh, together in this. Whether or not you are Jewish, you should not be tolerant of anything against a certain group of people. We all have to stand for one another. It's not acceptable to just blame a certain group or to judge a certain group as less than human or as less than in any way. That's not something that we should tolerate. And so as soon as we see it, we should say something about it, whatever um, that group of people is. I also um, you know, will soon do a book again on individuals, for example, with disabilities who still don't get treated with enough respect in this country and around the world as well. And so I try to be aware, and I'm going to miss injustices all the time. Unfortunately, there is not a shortage of injustice in this world. There's not a shortage of prejudice and discrimination in this world. Um, but we have to be on the lookout. It is up to all of us to be mindful and aware of the different trends and things that are going on in society where certain groups and certain individuals are being treated as less than in some way or are being um, talked about in some negative way. So I just wanted to mention that and have a segment today about that topic. I see some people making comments on Instagram as well about this, and I've seen people um, messaging about this as well, and I'm happy to hear that. But we want to make sure that our response, that we have an outrage whenever we see some type of uh, prejudice or discrimination against any group. I'm hoping that there will be an outrage, and there is some already, about the um, anti-Semitism that unfortunately is on the rise. But hopefully we can be anti-anti-Semitism, just like we're anti-racist, to make sure that we uh, are fighting for everyone, for all the injustices, that we make sure we don't ignore whatever we can see and whatever we can, uh, whatever we can do to help, we make sure we do that. So let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about, um, in, in a way, something related to the previous segment. I was talking about the rise in anti-Semitism and how it, it's unfortunately something that you're observing, but hopefully seeing a backlash as well. And this is a, a different topic, um, but it's related to statues and monuments, something that right now I'm seeing a little bit less in the news, but it seems to be coming up often, this um, uh, idea of should we take down certain monuments that uh, because the person, it turns out, uh, has, let's say, we find out that they're representing something bad or they always did represent something bad and people don't want to accept it. I'm always open to evaluating things. By that, I mean some people will say, well, if something was there, then we shouldn't change it. And I don't think because we've always done it that way, because it already existed, that's never a reason to continue doing something. One of the main aspects of how we try to evolve or evolving means to improve over time or to grow. And similarly, as a society, as humanity, we're hoping that we're growing, right? We do things better. We're hopefully moving towards not just technological advancements, but also um, advancements in our spiritual way of living, where we can say our morality, the ethics and the justice of the world should be evolving as well. So we should look at everything that's going on. And if something is unjust, if something is not good, if we used to do it some way, but we realize we, we shouldn't, then absolutely change is the only option in that way. We have to be looking um, for, for what the progress is. So just because they were there, I don't want us to think that's enough. So looking at the United States, one of the big uh, cornerstones or the reasons why this really came up, this issue of taking down monuments and statues, was the Confederate statues. And when it comes to the Confederate statues, I'm very much in favor of taking them all down. Um, because we have to look at what does the Confederacy stand for. And the Confederacy, some people say, oh, it's our history. And so that's one aspect that I'll talk about. Um, but it's not just about if it's our history, it's about what it represents. So in the United States, the Civil War, which uh, took place in about 1861 to 1865, I believe, was a war that was essentially about the South wanting to secede, become its own country, because it wanted to maintain slavery, because slavery was so important for its economy. And even if you look at the writings of and the speeches of the people who were the main, the president, vice president of uh, the Confederacy, they very clearly say that one of their tenets is that whites are superior to blacks. So it was about maintaining slavery, white superiority, white supremacy, and also, as an American, to me, it's always strange because they were, in a way, against America. They were trying to split America apart and become another country. And so what we, when we look at what they represent or what the Confederacy represents, it represents disunity of the United States of America. We even have united in the, uh, our name. Um, and it also is a part of expressing wanting to maintain the institution of slavery which is, of course, something that I would hope all people, not just Americans, but all people are against anyone being a slave. No one should be, of course, it's, it's uh, not even speakable to say someone should be the property of someone else. So, of course not. So, 
when we look at what the Confederacy represents to most people, it's these negative and horrible aspects or history of America. And so when people say take it down, we can understand, especially if you're a black American living in a country where slavery was a big part of the history and what built the country and, of course, continues in the different ways that the laws still are racist, you can then look at those statues and say, how are we celebrating individuals that wanted to keep me in bondage, that wanted to keep slavery? How is that something to be celebrated? And I think that makes complete sense to want to get rid of that. Or can you imagine being a individual who is going to a school and you're African-American and that person wanted to maintain slavery, saw you as less than? These things I think are not okay and changing the names of things is not something we should be afraid of. So we have the statues, we also have changing the names of institutions, including military bases, and I don't think we should be afraid of, of that. You evaluate each one and see if it makes sense, but this whole idea that because it was named this, we name, change the names of things all the time. We, you know, to celebrate someone, we might change the name of a street. The street was called something else and now it's called that. You have Martin Luther King Boulevard in so many cities in the United States, of course, before Martin Luther King was alive and before he was celebrated, the street was named something else, but people were very happy to change that name. So changing names, uh, taking down statues, I think we have to look at what's the reasoning behind it. And when the reason is to promote a more united America, to show that the United States of America is for all of its citizens, not just some, not just for uh, white people, then you realize that it makes a lot of sense and it is something we should do. Now, one of the arguments people will make is um, we can't forget our history, that people will say we're maintaining these monuments or these statues because of remembering our history. And of course, we, we want to make sure we don't forget our history. I was talking about it in the last segment when we look at anti-Semitism, that when we always want to understand ourselves, we have to understand our history to see what we did, what we didn't do, what the causes of different things were, so we keep learning from those things. But Remembering history is different from celebrating history and celebrating individuals. If you go to Germany, they don't forget the Holocaust and they don't forget Hitler, but you don't see Hitler statues and monuments celebrating him. You'll see a museum and you'll see memorials, which are very important and a very big part of them understanding their history, learning and growing from it, but they don't celebrate Hitler. So an example would be as if uh, for Iranians, imagine if you went back to Iran. I know a lot of people want, let's say, change and for things to, to be changed. And if you went there, would you want there to be statues of, let's say, Khomeini that you would have to look at and or the name of your school was Khomeini High School or something like that celebrating him? I don't think you would want to remember that person in that way if you're someone who has certain mindset about Iran. You would not want to forget what happened. You would definitely remember it but you wouldn't want to have statues and monuments celebrating that person. So similarly in the United States, we have to look at what did these individuals do and what did they stand for? So if someone stood for promoting slavery and what they're remembered for is being on the Confederate side of things when it came to the Civil War, we want to think of what that's representing. How American is that? Now, I know I was saying just because something existed, that doesn't mean it should stay that way. But even if we look at these Confederate statues, they didn't come up around the, uh, the Civil War. They 
showed up most often way later, clearly as a symbol to black Americans who now had their freedom as far as not being slaves, but to let them know, don't think we've forgotten or don't think that, you know, things are somehow equal or things are okay. It was clearly a symbol of continuing racism and racist policies and letting people know that this is still not your country, it's still our country. So they're symbols of hate, they're symbols of racism, and that's why people want them taken down. Now, of course, this conversation of let's take down the Confederate statues has also opened up conversations about, well, should we take down all these other people's statues? A lot of, of course, the founding fathers, they owned slaves, Thomas Jefferson, for example. And so it, it does bring up these questions of should we, who should we honor? And I think this brings up a very, um, it's a lot more gray area, I think, with certain individuals. We want to always look at who they were, what they represented. If you go far enough back in history, everyone will probably not live up to our standards morally now in a variety of factors. And if people look at us now, if they look at me now, 100 years from now, there might be things that I, or I'm sure there's things that I'm not aware of as injustices or things that I continue to perpetuate without realizing they were something unjust. And they might not like how I'm thinking and how most of us are thinking in today's day and age. So we want to be aware of those things. It actually makes me think that rather than having statues and monuments to individuals, we shouldn't do that at all. We can have statues or monuments or you know something to celebrate some kind of movement or some kind of achievement. But I think we should think about, should we even have a statue that celebrates a person? Because to me, something we're doing is we're turning people into gods or something like, you know, something greater than human. Interestingly, the other side of dehumanization, usually we think of dehumanizing as making someone less than. There's another way of dehumanizing when we make someone greater than normal people or other people. But I think this is a problem when we make people into gods. And we do it, of course, with historical figures, but we also do it with people who are living in different ways. We turn celebrities, athletes, certain uh, other individuals into people who are greater than everyone else in too extreme a way. So I think it's important to recognize the good things that people do, recognize movements and positive things that happen in history, but we really do want to consider how we are celebrating people and if we're doing something really good for us to turn them into a god. Because whoever you look at, any individual in history, if we were to know every single bad thing and the worst thing that they've done, maybe then we would say, well, that person shouldn't have a statue either. Because when we make them a statue, we're saying they're like a saint. They're a god who's never done anything wrong, which is not true of anyone. So I think we should maybe reconsider even how we have things like statues and monuments. Why do we need them at all? Why do we need to have a statue that makes one person um, so much greater than everyone else? We could admire the good things that people have done. So you can say, here is so-and-so or the movement towards the woman's right to vote in the United States. But maybe should we have one person as the only representative of that? I understand it can sometimes help to make it one person that represents that movement, but maybe we can even rethink how we memorialize certain things and how we celebrate certain things. And so I think this came to me when I was thinking about how we reflect on some of these statues of people from several hundred years ago. 
who of course have done some things that in today's um, eyes are completely unacceptable. Of course, I was just talking about how horrible slavery is, so of course we can't tolerate that. But if it was more the norm back then, how do we evaluate that? How do we evaluate them now in, in the, uh, with these standards when they lived in a different time? It is a bit challenging and complicated. And even if it wasn't about something, of course, as horrific as owning slaves, anyone that we try to celebrate has made mistakes. If we look at the worst thing they've done, it's probably something that is not okay. And so when we're creating these statues and monuments to people from the past, it's very easy that we can dig up some things about them that are not okay. And it might make us think about maybe we shouldn't have statues of these individuals at all. Why do they have to be created into a godlike figure? Everyone is human beings. They've maybe done some great things. We should definitely recognize them and, and think about them. But we don't want to make it into that whole person was a perfect person. That person was a god. And also we want to think of when we do that today. People in our society, we elevate them into a godlike form. We make them no longer human. Again, like I said, athletes, celebrities, other individuals. And I think this is something we should be concerned about. Everyone is a human being. All people can do good and bad things. When they do good things, we can recognize it, we can acknowledge it, we can even celebrate it. But it doesn't turn that person into a god. Uh, this conversation also came up. I was on a family Zoom this weekend. We were talking about things like competition, but we mentioned like the uh, coronavirus vaccine and how people are competing. And of course, they're competing because financially, you probably can get a lot of money. Your name will get recognized. And of course, I'm sure they also want to save lives and help people. There can be various motivations that people have. But sometimes what happens in these types of situations is if someone finds that um, the cure or finds the vaccine, it becomes them. Their name gets put on everything uh, and they might get all the credit. But this usually is not a reality of the situation where really what's happening is that they're building on the science of many people. They're probably working in a group. So in a way, thousands of people have contributed to developing that vaccine, if not more. And so the way we remember these things, I think, is important. Rather than just thinking of these gods of history, of science, or whatever the field is, we should recognize that many people have contributed to whatever is going on. So when we think of the vaccine when it's developed, rather than it being about one person, it's not going to be about one person. And even there's some people who are right about how a lot of times this mindset we have of like the individual genius that has come up with something usually is not the case. It's always almost always more of a collaborative type process. But I do have to wrap up because I'm out of time, but I wanted to just mention some things about the statues and monuments and some of my thoughts on that. But that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.